0: You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are looking at effective altruism um so this is a fun one for me um because uh, as a bit of personal background i am in many ways a failed philosopher um i sort of embarked uh on what i thought was going to be an academic career in philosophy a long long time ago and decided that wasn't actually what i wanted to do um but it's been fun doing the research for this to kind of dig back into to a bit of that although i have to say um this particular area of kind of ethics and uh, morality is not the sort of thing that i was focusing on when i was doing philosophy but uh nonetheless it's Nice to get in there and uh, read a bit of um, philosophical analysis. Um, So I guess the starting point um, is just to kind of explain a bit about what effective altruism actually is. So many of you out there sort of who know a bit about philanthropy might well have heard of effective altruism because it's been around for a few years and there's been a lot of discussion of it. Um, Essentially, it kind of started life as a philosophical movement coming out of academia, um, particularly linked to the work of the Australian uh, ethicist Peter Singer, um, but subsequently, as a few other figures like Will McCaskill and Toby Ord, who've become uh, very closely associated with um, the ideas and and the kind of implementation of uh, of effective altruism. So the key idea behind it is it's essentially a form of utilitarianism. Um, so this is a kind of ethical theory that um, prioritises doing the most possible good for the greatest possible number of people. Um, so the the kind of key idea behind uh, effective altruism, the starting point is that giving and philanthropy um, is not something voluntary. It's not a choice. It's a duty or an obligation. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of the starting point. We don't decide whether or not to give. We are all under a compunction to give morally Um, and then effective altruism goes on to say that there is a further duty on all of us to do the maximum possible good with the resources available to us and that means um, that as a donor um, your only choice is about how to, to maximize that utility and the kind of the, the centerpiece of this and what distinguishes as we'll see effective altruism from sort of previous movements that have focused on the idea of effectiveness is it takes it to the extreme of saying that as a donor this means that you should be agnostic not just about the which organization you give to but even about which cause area um, and and that is um, as we 'll see, I think why people feel it 's sort of qualitatively different from from movements that have come before um, in the next section we 'll go on and sort of talk a bit more about the some of the intellectual background and history of where effective altruisms come from um, but for now, I just want to say kind of a little bit about practically um, how effective altruism is influencing philanthropy. Um, so there's a couple of different things. So there's a few different sort of organisations or uh, movements that have kind of taken elements of effective altruism as a philosophical doctrine and, and put it into practice. So high profile ones here include giving what we can. Um, so this is an organisation that promotes the idea that actually what what we should all do in the compunction on all of us if we believe the, the tenets of effective altruism is to calculate how much money we need to live on comfortably each year um and then uh, basically stick at that level and any money um beyond that and it's a, it's a reasonably sort of spartan level of living although you know those who uh who sort of uh, follow this credo would say that actually you know when you really think about it how many of these things do you need if you're living a sort of truly ethical life? Um, you know, a lot of it is is just sort of uh, nice to have or frippery, um, and actually, you could be giving away far more. Um, or most of us could be giving away far more than we actually think. And the idea is that then, you know, over time, you stick to that that level of personal consumption. All the rest then is given away to charity using the the wider principles of effective altruism. Um, and you know, lots of people have have signed up to to that, particularly. I think it still has a sort of bias towards people coming from academia who very much kind of buy into the the intellectual framing of it. Um, but, you know, a lot of those people are now sort of coming out into the, the wider world and taking those principles of effective of altruism with them. Um, a linked one that sort of takes a, a slightly different angle on this, although, although it's, um, it's kind of similar basis, is the um, 80,000 Hours movement, Um, And the idea here is that actually if you're thinking about using philanthropy as a means to follow the principles of effective altruism uh, and to do the most good for the greatest number of people, actually for, for most people what that means is not working directly on a cause. Um, You know there's going to be a very small number of people according to this argument who are actually able to have a sort of meaningful impact on social issues um, by going for instance and working at a charity or non-profit and actually what the 80,000 hours argument says is particularly for sort of people who could get a higher paying higher salary job as a graduate going into financial services or something else lucrative like that what you should really do is think very rationally and objectively and take those principles about wanting to do the greatest good in the world with the resources available to you and then choose a career that allows you allows you to maximize the resource side of it so that you have more money to give away to fund the kind of um the wider um efforts of effective altruism um Which is, as we'll see, you know that that's particularly an approach that some people have kind of found uh, controversial because it sort of it runs quite counter to a lot of the prevailing narrative about people wanting to have, you know, purpose-driven jobs and uh, no longer wanting to see there as being a distinction between the ways in which you make money and the ways in which you uh, potentially give it away. Because actually, this. This uh, 80,000 hours idea is quite old-fashioned in some sense in that it sort of says, well, go and do your money-making on the one hand, although obviously some people may also want to kind of uh, impose ethical criteria on that, but then just make as much of it as you can so that then you can give it away philanthropically, which is you know almost coming back to a kind of Victorian uh, view of wealth creation and philanthropy. Um, and then there are a couple of, of other things as well. I mean, one sort of sidebar um, is to to note that one... A train of thought that you see quite a lot within effective altruism is about sort of animal rights and animal liberation um, and questions about whether doing the greatest good for the greatest number means that you should prioritise human lives over... um, Uh, over animal lives because actually uh, particularly Peter Singer, one of the other things he's very famous for is arguing very strongly that um, from an ethical standpoint we shouldn't do that and actually animal lives are just as much of value as human lives Um, so there's certainly one school of thought within effective altruism that uh, will say that if you are following the principles of effective altruism, actually kind of looking at animal welfare issues is one area that's very likely to score very highly on the kind of you know utilitarian measures that they employ. The other one is not so much thinking about the distinction between human lives and animal lives, but human lives here and now in the present and future human lives. And again, there are people within the effective altruism movement and sort of wider philosophy who would argue quite strongly that we shouldn't make a distinction between the value of a present human life and the value of future human lives. Uh, And actually what that tends to do, as we'll see, um, is skew the balance very much towards things that focus on future human lives, because obviously there are always going to be far more future lives than there are people uh, alive in the world now. So actually if you are measuring those things equally that is going to give you a heavy bias towards interventions that potentially result in um, the improvement of lots of future human lives rather than focusing on a small number um, of kind of current lives and that's where you see quite a lot of focus on things like existential threats and and why some people have ended up criticizing effective altruism on those grounds but we'll come on to that in a later section and then i think the other thing to say is just you know frankly why should we care about this if it's just a kind of philosophical movement that a few undergraduates and and sort of philosophy professors are talking about well it isn't because a lot of people as I say within the philanthropy world have kind of latched on to this idea um and particularly i think donors coming from a kind of technology background and there's a very heavy um kind of thread of this coming out of silicon valley where lots of people have made lots of money and obviously the idea of kind of rational approaches to uh, philanthropy appeal to the sorts of people who've probably gone in and made lots of money um, developing technology... So actually, there are some pretty big donors who've come out of uh, Silicon Valley who are applying effective altruism uh, principles in their own giving, um, notably people like uh, Dustin Moskovitz and Carrie So Moskovitz was one of the uh, original founders of Facebook, and he set up a, a big foundation with his wife, Carrie Tuner, and they are kind of uh, following effective altruism principles. And there's also a sort of wider, you know, outside of the core tech world interest in Uh, rationality and and rationalism that this plays into. So people like um, Elisa Yudkowsky um, and other thinkers kind of espouse rationality in lots of other areas of life. So actually for people who are minded to go along with that thread of thinking, um, the effect of altruism offers a very sort of compelling way of applying the same thinking when it comes to charitable giving. Um, okay, so that's kind of idea of what effective altruism is and a bit of kind of how we're seeing it play out in the next section. I want to uh come on and sort of look back a bit and see where some of this might have come from um and kind of what we can learn from some of that historical background. So stay tuned for that okay, so we're back for the second section. Um, And in this section, as I said before the break, what I want to do is just think a bit about where um, effective altruism has come from historically. And I want to do this sort of in two different ways. One is to sort of briefly to have a bit of a think about where it has come from in a philosophical sense and what sort of traditions it builds on. And then secondly, sort of where the idea of imposing rationality on philanthropic giving has come from historically and kind of how those two things have converged in effective altruism. So in terms of the the philosophical side of it, as I said, effective altruism is is essentially a form of um, utilitarian ethics. So uh, utilitarianism's got a pretty long history. I mean, there are some uh, sort of religious writers who were talking almost in utilitarian terms, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but probably the most prominent figures who kind of put out um, fully fledged theories of utilitarian ethics um, were uh, Jeremy Bentham and then John Stuart Mill um, after him um, and essentially it's, it's a form of normative rather than descriptive ethics so it's designed to tell us how we should be behaving rather than an attempt to describe how we do behave. Um, it's also it's a form of uh, consequentialism or consequentialist ethics in that the focus is solely on the outcomes that are produced. So we're not really particularly interested in actions or motives or the kind of virtues of the individuals involved. Um, the 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 good is measured solely in terms of what is achieved um, and what those those outcomes are. Um, it's also impartial and agent neutral. So. the the notion of of good that we're employing in utilitarianism to measure the greatest possible good uh, applies equally to everyone, not just to me. So you're not thinking about an individual agent trying to maximise good insofar as it reflects on them or affects them. It's about good in the widest possible sense as it affects humanity, I guess. Um, And this this sort of uh, strain of thinking, as I say, kind of mill... um, and Bentham applied it a lot to uh, the sphere of politics, and they thought sort of, uh, you know, politics should be reconstituted along these lines. Um, and you know, there've been plenty of others who have um, kind of developed some of these these ideas more in the in the field of individual ethics. Um, and before effective altruism kind of took life um, as a movement, Peter Singer had very much been exploring a lot of this work through a series of very influential essays that he'd done sort of in the 1970s, um, he particularly essays like uh, The Life You Can Save and his book Practical Ethics. Um, and one thing that quite often gets cited as a sort of key starting point for a lot of what became Effective Altruism is um, a particular argument that Singer put forward about the the life of a drowning child. So he basically said that if a ch- child was drowning um, next to you in a pond um, and you would decided not to help them on the basis that you thought you know somebody else would be able to to help them, um, and this sort of thing. That is that is comparable to the decision not to to help a child, for instance, in the developing world by giving money um, to them, because you are just as capable of affecting uh, uh, good through that action as you are through um affecting uh good through your sort of direct intervention by saving a child from drowning. And his point here, I think, was uh particularly to make one about um the fact that, that we shouldn't see a distinction between uh helping people at a distance and helping those near to us. And this is a sort of key point that you see. Um playing out in effective altruism and actually leads some people to to criticize it that if you don't make that distinction particularly given the way that global inequality works um you almost always end up when you're talking about maximizing good through the use of philanthropic resources talking about giving money to people in the developing world where every individual pound or dollar you know almost inevitably can have a much uh, greater impact um And then, you know, this kind of uh, utilitarian ethics and and rationality and desire to to kind of impose rationality um, on the decision making that affects charity, um, I think if it had come out of nowhere, um, it would have been interesting as a sort of philosophical salon exercise, but it really probably wouldn't have had much impact in terms of affecting philanthropy itself. But the reason that it has had quite a lot of impact and it hasn't been as difficult for it to get traction is that the idea in one way or another of making philanthropic giving more rational is something that has been, you know, there as a constant thread through the history of philanthropy for hundreds of years. Um, not necessarily uh in terms of kind of employing utilitarian thinking, but um in, in various different ways um we've seen it play out. So um i think it's worth saying um kind of one starting point or kind of you know seminal point um as ever in these things is um the the reformation just because the, the the schism um between the catholic church and the protestant church in in britain um resulted over time in a fairly sort of fundamental shift in in philanthropy where religious teaching was important but for the first time um, a kind of secular conception of giving which prioritised the idea of the the impact that the giving had during the donor's lifetime or in the world as it was, um, took hold. Whereas um, previous sort of medieval ideas of charity had been based on the idea that um, sort of poverty was part of God's natural order and the, the purpose of charity was essentially merely to... Um, uh, to absolve the the donor from sins or kind of secure their passage um to to heaven after their death so it really what was done with the money wasn't really very important um and you can see this actually in in some forms of protestantism so i think it's important to say that you know it wasn't immediate the protestants came in and made everything um effective um, and i just want to read uh, here from um, a paper by uh, J.B. Schneewind, or Schneewind, I don't know whether the the W should be a v there, um, but this is a, a paper on philosophical ideas of charity that I read fairly recently, and one thing that really sort of struck me was um, this paper, this section explaining the views of Calvin or this kind of religious teachings about giving, which I think makes this point quite clearly. So it says The doctrine of the calling makes it easier to understand how Calvin can put so much stress on the motivation of the individual donor. Acting within the limits of our calling, we need not worry about the overall success of our charitable endeavors, provided, of course, that they are sincere. We also need not worry about whether and how one's own efforts fit in with those of others. It's central to Calvin's view that God's providence is constantly exercised. With that in mind, all one needs to do is act lovingly to carry out the charitable duties of one's station. The consequences are in God's hands. So even then, you see, the focus is very much on the donor and what it does, what the act of giving uh, offers the donor and actually what is achieved with the gift is sort of neither here nor there. And that is the thing that sort of at the point at which you get the reformation starts to shift as there is more focus on um, on the sort of uh, secular conception of philanthropy and also you start to get kind of broader enlightenment ideas developing. Um, so uh, there's an interesting thing from a paper that um, Roberts did about scientific charity. Um, so, um, and I'm sorry, this isn't the scientific charity. This is one um, tracing the uh, the development of the the kind of head versus heart distinction in charity. Um, but he says because the act of giving was now voluntary in a moral as well as a legal sense, it was reasonable for the donor to expect the recipient to conform to certain continuing standards of deservingness. Because the act was to benefit society as well as the distressed recipient. The donor also had a duty, the duty to ensure that the gift was properly bestowed and applied. So that's, you know, a kind of a neat way of putting it, which is that actually the question of what is achieved with the gift starts to become as relevant as what happens, you know, what it does for the donor. Um, and then these sorts of ideas, I think, take hold over time. And then, where you really see the idea of rationality kind of coming to the fore is um, in the Victorian era and sort of early 20th century, and talked about this many times on the podcast before because I find it fascinating, but um, the charity organization society movement and then subsequently the scientific charity movement. Um, And the idea with these was very much that, um, you know, the the charitable impulse had to be sort of tamed and made more rational in order to ensure that um that uh, what was achieved with the money um you know was was actually kind of benefiting society although obviously there was um a pretty heavy element of uh, kind of moralistic view of poverty that made distinctions between the deserving and the undeserving poor there as well so the the conception of rationality you need to be a little bit careful of Um, But I I just really like this um, couple of quotes from William Rathbone, who I've mentioned before, but was a big um, philanthropist in Liverpool um, and sort of subscribed to quite a lot of the the ideals of charity organisation. And he wrote a really fascinating um, sort of memoir in which he he talked a lot about the, the challenges of trying to get donors and other donors to understand the need for philanthropy to be rational. So he says, "'Few among the rich realise "'that charity is not a virtue of su- supererogation, uh, "'but a divine charge upon their wealth, "'which they have no right to neglect. "'They give to this or that family "'whose story interests them, "'to this or that institution "'for the relief of some form of distress "'which pe- peculiarly touches their sympathies, "'with no idea that the matter is not one "'in which they have a right to indul- indulge their caprice, "'that all the misery within their sphere is an evil.' with which it is their duty to grapple, to which they are bound to apply the remedial energies and resources at their command, not as it suits their taste or fancy, but as may be most efficacious in the relief of suffering. So, you know, I think that's really interesting. He's sort of saying, actually, the duty on donors um, is to ensure that their giving um, is effective, not just... Um, You know, they don't just get to sort of pick and choose. Another interesting uh, sort of historical tidbit about um, William Rathbone um, is that you'll recall we mentioned the idea of the sort of 80,000 hours movement um, uh, in effective altruism that says that, you know, what you should do if you want to be effective is go off and maximize the amount of money that you make. Interestingly, Rathbone himself kind of grappled with this question and reached the same conclusion. Um, So in Margaret Simey's book on charitable um, effort in Liverpool in the Victorian era, um, he says that um, Rathbone was kind of torn between thinking whether he should go into the ministry and kind of help the poor directly or whether he should go into... um, into business um, and eventually he said viewing the issue in the light of common sense he decided that for him an effective life of public service would depend on his possession of the influence and respect secured by success in business accordingly he set himself doggedly to the task of building up the family fortunes which had suffered from the devotion of his father and grandfather to public work and um, so again you know he kind of Took his own self-interest out of it because he probably would have preferred to go and uh, work directly with the poor, um, but thought that actually what he should do was go off and maximise the amount of money he could make and his sort of political influence and connections, and then use that to do the maximum amount of good. Um, and then the the scientific charity movement sort of followed on from the charity organisation society movement. Um, it more sort of focused on on the US, but employing a lot of the same ideas. And again kind of focusing on on the idea of trying to make uh, charity more rational according to scientific principles uh, and this then sort of has led to um kind of ongoing efforts from from lots of quarters to develop um the idea of sort of effective giving and making giving more effective and sometimes that is trying to make it closer to business and adopting business like principles Um, In other cases, it's more about kind of introducing measurements so that you're more rigorously kind of measuring the effectiveness of interventions and making sure that what you're doing actually has some sort of measurable good. Um, But the thing, I think, as we mentioned before, that that is that's kind of quantitatively or qualitatively even different about effective altruism, as opposed to all of these sort of previous iterations of rationality, is that adding in that layer of utilitarianism, that kind of core element of it, what that brings to the party is the idea that it's not just about a donor coming to the table with an idea of what they want to give to and then perhaps trying to maximise effectiveness by picking wisely amongst organisations that work in that area. The starting point, according to Effective Altruism, should be that you as a donor have no particular view about what cause you give to um, and that actually your duty is to just think about what is the maximum possible good you can do with your money and then give according to that regardless of the cause. Um, So on this is a a good article um, by William Shambra from 2014 called The Emerging Threat of Effective Altruism. Shambra is a kind of interesting conservative commentator on um, philanthropy issues and a critic of effective altruism. Um, And he says about effective altruism, Although this might sound like just another manifestation of strategic philanthropy's metric-mindedness, it's critical to understand that it's in in fact a profound radicalization of it. Effective altruists make strategic philanthropists look like sloppy sentimentalists. Strategic philanthropists seek only to apply metrics to the selection of groups once a cause has been selected. But altruist critics note... This foolishly leaves the choice of the cause itself willy-nilly to the all-too-often idiosyncratic, short-sighted, selfish impulses of the donor. So obviously it's not the most objective uh, <laughs> reporting of what effective altruism is, but I think the fundamental point about that is the one that that kind of brings to light what is genuinely new about it, which is that idea of sort of donor uh, objectivity when it comes to cause selection, not just selection of organisations. Um, And that kind of brings us neatly on to the next section where we'll look at what some of the kind of key concerns and criticisms that have been expressed about effective altruism are. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back for the last section. Uh, and this is probably the fun bit because this is where we get to look at criticisms of effective altruism. And not particularly that I have an axe to grind about uh, effective altruism, but I quite like uh, sort of engaging with uh, particular criticisms and critical arguments especially in uh, uh philosophy because it makes me feel nostalgic um so the first criticism i want to look at um briefly is the the kind of probably the most basic one which is the one that says well yes this is all very interesting and uh you know effective altruism works very well as uh something to get people talking in kind of undergraduate philosophy seminars um and you know in kind of best-selling books but actually it's totally impractical um, as a way of doing philanthropy or will only ever be very limited because it's it's so much at the sort of extreme end of the head versus heart um, uh, division in in charity that most donors are never going to go for it you know it's kind of it's just not how philanthropy works the idea that most donors would come to the table with no uh, idea about what cause they want to support and then happily uh, kind of take a, a totally um, uh, objective view of where to give based solely on kind of maximization of utility just you know just is totally unrealistic with respect to the psychology and the what the actual drivers of philanthropy are um and you know I kind of have a lot of sympathy with that. I mean, I think that is true. I guess the defence from effective altruism would be, yeah, it's not supposed to be a descriptive theory. It's a normative theory. The idea is that we're telling people how they should do things, not trying to describe what things look like at the moment. So the fact that most philanthropy, you know doesn't conform to uh the requirements of effective altruism shows that current philanthropy is flawed and that actually what needs to happen is that it should be fundamentally transformed um and, you know, that that sort of puts people on two sides of the argument, you know, those who believe in effective altruism and think that maybe all other uh, philanthropy is, is uh, kind of deeply flawed and needs to change, and those who probably resent being told that the way in which they're doing philanthropy, even if it's, you know, they believe it to be very effective, is flawed because they're not following the precepts of, of effective altruism um, – but it you know it's this is worth taking seriously um as i mentioned before because there are plenty of people who take effective altruism seriously and actually are putting it into practice um as a kind of practical guide to how to do philanthropy rather than just sort of an interesting philosophical theory and i guess one interesting thing to to throw into the mix there um going to some work i've done uh on technology and sort of artificial intelligence which i think we've talked on the podcast before about is i sort of wonder whether actually the increasing um availability of data and the ability to automate decision processes um as that creeps into the world of philanthropy Um, might kind of tip the balance even more towards effective altruism because you will require sort of decision-making frameworks which allow you to um, say something about what you want to optimize through algorithmic processes and actually it's pretty hard to come up with what you might want to optimize for in philanthropy unless you have a theory like uh, effective altruism that can allow you to be cause neutral and set some sort of one metric that allows you then to to kind of maximize um uh your performance again so actually i think effective altruism at least in the short term is is going to look very appealing as a kind of frame philosophical or kind of um conceptual framework within which you could kind of automate some of the decision making around philanthropy so um you know sorry to scare you if that sounds horrific um the second criticism of uh, effective altruism is that it to say that actually the sort of consequentialism um and the idea that we should solely focus on the outcomes when applied to philanthropy kind of that ignores all of the other elements of philanthropy that are important because you know the argument here is that philanthropy is not just about um what is produced through the giving and the actions of the organizations that are given to there are all sorts of other elements of it um such as ensuring justice or democracy or agency on the part of the individual and that actually if you're thinking in those terms you know you have to balance all of them so yes you want to um kind of deliver the best possible outcomes but you don't want to do it at a cost of imperiling other people's freedom um, or kind of undermining democracy. And this is a criticism you see particularly in the context of the focus that effective altruism naturally brings on giving to the developing world. Because actually, if you take a fully-fledged effective altruist view and you kind of measure what is the the utilitarian effectiveness of a particular outcome, then you might sort of go ahead full steam and say that needs to be delivered you know, in a particular country. But what if that imperils the the kind of uh, ability of that country to self-govern or the people in that country to have agency over their own lives? You know, actually, do we need to to think more about balancing some of the requirements of justice and democracy against the, the kind of desire for effectiveness? And if we do, then actually effective altruism in its purest form might need to be tempered by some of those other considerations. Um, another criticism that you hear quite often is that because the effect of altruism and other forms of utilitarianism require you to sort of measure what is the greatest good that you can do with your money, the immediate question is, okay, so what what do you mean by that? What's the metric that you're employing to measure good? Um, so you have to decide what that is. And it's usually something like quality-adjusted life years or some measure um, of that. But actually, the argument is whatever the the choice of measure you're making there has a determinate impact on skewing um, the 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 actions that you that you take. So this is um, essentially a version of kind of Goodhart's law, which is that um, in various forms, kind of all activity skews towards the thing that you are measuring. So if you set up a metric over time, people just kind of work towards maximising against that metric, even if that's not necessarily actually the best overall um, way uh, of achieving good. Um, And particularly what a lot of people say is that the sorts of measures that tend to be employed in effective altruism focus on things that are easier to measure, that are tangible and that are short-term, and those things that are much more difficult to measure because they're more nebulous or difficult to attribute, things like longer-term social change, um Those tend to score very badly, so actually effective altruism would you know in in that question about whether you focus philanthropic activity on addressing the the sort of symptoms of problems in the here and now or you focus more on trying to address the underlying causes through things like trying to to advocate or campaign for for necessary social and political change, it skews the balance very much towards the the former and so if everybody's taking an effective altruist approach it 's going to be very difficult to justify the the spending on that, that sort of social change even if actually after the event you can show that that was a much more effective way of improving the lives of more people um another criticism which sort of builds on that is that because as we've said you know effective altruism is essentially about uh affecting uh kind of doing things directly within existing systems Um, so the question is um, is it any good at kind of addressing systemic change Um, and this relates to a kind of wider criticism that's that's going on around philanthropy at the moment so you see this in the work of people like uh, Anand Girardaradas, Rob Reich uh, and others you know one of the criticisms of philanthropy at the moment is that it's it's problematic as a way of moving society forward because it reflects existing structures and inequalities. So it can never truly be used as a tool to sort of dismantle those structures or or um, kind of transform them. Um, and a lot of people would say instead, you know, we need to focus on changing the systems um, through kind of advocacy and, and political work. Um, and that's a sort of broader argument. But actually, you know, the... At the moment, the the direction of travel uh, certainly seems or rhetorically to be towards that and actually philanthropy is sort of slightly struggling to defend itself against some of those criticisms. Effective altruism firmly sits on the other side of the, the fence. I mean, it very much is about, you know, working with the world as it is now and trying to kind of do the maximum possible good through direct uh, intervention. Um, and, you know, this this is why some people have sort of criticised it on the grounds of, of justice. So I just want to read a quote from um, a really great paper um, by Elizabeth Ashford called Severe, Posit- uh, Severe Poverty is an Unjust Emergency, which is sort of all about some of these criticisms of effective altruism. And she she kind of explains this, this particular criticism uh, as such. She says, those who take affluent agents' duties to the global poor to be duties of justice – argue that effective altruism fails to address or challenge the underlying structural causes of severe poverty. Uh, Effective altruism tends to focus on individual affluent agents' capacity to save or transform persons' lives by funding aid agencies to perform specific interventions, the effectiveness of which can be measured by randomised controlled trials. Critics argue that this moral framing obscures the way the affluent tend to benefit from structures that harm the poor. They further argue that it's a band-aid approach which does not address the root causes of severe poverty. So this is the point that actually you know what you're doing here is just working within the existing systems to try and kind of maximise good but if what's actually required is fundamental change of those systems then that's never going to be enough. Um, Interestingly Ashford herself kind of offers what I think is a quite a compelling idea that You don't necessarily need to view things in those binary terms and then actually pragmatically you should think about kind of achieving systemic change at the same time as working with the system as it is for now to try and kind of do the maximum possible good that you can. Um, so she sort of says the Victorian philanthropist should have used his wealth and influence to support the impetus for structural reform that eventually led to the Factory Acts. In the meantime, he should also have acknowledged the importance of donating to organisations that supported destitute children and enabled them to attend school and so on. Affluent agents should recognise that the persistence of severe poverty constitutes an ongoing structural human rights violation, which imposes on us an urgent shared general duty of basic justice to implement the structural reforms that would achieve its abolition. Until this is achieved, we also have urgent duties to support NGOs in providing for a vast number the only available opportunity to avoid a drastic and cheaply preventable harm that is likely to blight or altogether destroy their lives. So I quite like this argument because I think it balances that idealism of recognising the necessity for structural change with the sort of pragmatism of let's not that the best be the enemy of a good, and let 's also try and help people right here and now um, and I think you know that's important when kind of considering um, effective altruism as it is sort of more widely with philanthropy um, Another criticism um that you hear of uh, effective altruism, which i've sort of alluded to, is that the particular kind of way of measuring good that you get through kind of employing these utilitarian principles, particularly given the sort of nature of the global economy as it is now inevitably ends up with a bias in favour of um, causes uh, or individuals in the developing world rather than causes, you know, closer to home where people might genuinely have needs but they're likely to be less life-threatening or pressing needs than those people existing in sort of extreme poverty. And this kind of flips the idea of, you know, charity begins at home uh, on its head so that, you know, the criticism some people would have of effective altruism is it promotes an idea of charity begins overseas um and this is an idea with a long sort of um historical precedent. So uh in the Victorian era there were quite a lot of criticisms of the idea of telescopic philanthropy. So this is the the caricature of the donor who would sort of willingly give to fund missions overseas in Africa, but would ignore the kind of grinding poverty around them um in Victorian cities. Um and Dickens had the character of Mrs. Jellyby in um Bleak House, who was very much a kind of caricature of this type um and there were you know plenty of other things some uh, great uh, poems and things i'll put some links in the show notes to that that kind of mock this idea of telescopic philanthropy um and william shambra who i mentioned earlier as a critic of effective altruism he he sort of strongly criticizes it on these grounds so um as a sort of small c conservative um uh, commentator on philanthropy one of the things he particularly wants to defend um is the idea of what he calls philanthrolocalism so here he's kind of contrasting it with philanthropic capitalism but he's sort of saying actually the idea of you know charity and philanthropy as a way of focusing on things around you in your locality and community shouldn't be seen as kind of you know parochial and old fashioned actually that is you know an, an absolutely sort of vital and, and core part of what philanthropy is about and actually if an ideology or a sort of you know, theoretical framework like effective altruism legislates against that, then that is a reason to be very cautious about it. Um, an interesting uh, sort of additional criticism linked to that um, that's worth flagging up. I read a, a paper just just in the last week or so um, that, uh, looking at the sort of psychology of effective altruism and basically saying that people who subscribe to the idea of effective altruism and as a result... Um, do tend to give more to uh distant you know agents because they they buy into the the kind of utilitarian ideal and and measure the the where they can do the greatest good and end up giving overseas this has unintended consequences when it comes to um sort of the psychological effects on other people's perception of them so that the basic point was that the paper sort of measured people's moral perceptions of altruism um, when people were giving to what are, are categorized as socially distant individuals, so people who are not connected to them, and that might be sort of by geography or it might just be sort of broadly by social connection, versus giving to socially near ones. Um, and what it sort of found is that actually, you know, giving to people who are socially distant, so overseas, is seen as a good thing. But if that comes at the expense of people who are socially nearer to you, people tend to view that negatively. So, I mean, I in layman's terms, it's the idea again—you know, telescopic philanthropy. It's sort of it's fine if you want to give to people who are far away on the other side of the world. But if that means that people have a perception that you are ignoring the needs of those who are kind of around you in your locality or your family, then that is problematic, and view, people view you much less positively and are less willing to sort of socially cooperate with you and things like that as a result. So I thought that was really interesting. Um and then the final criticism um that I want to touch on um comes back to uh, really the sort of um the idea within effective altruism that we should measure uh, current human lives and future lives equally. Um and this sort of leads us into a particular criticism of the way in which um one one strand within effective altruism that's developed is around the kind of existential threat philanthropy so this is people putting vast amounts of money into preventing things like uh, the kind of ai singularity and you know robot takeover of the world um or kind of collision with extraterrestrial objects and and things like this um and the reason that this kind of tends to go along with effective altruism as i say is that actually Um, If you are measuring uh, based on future lives as well as present lives, then actually the sort of vast number of, of future lives that you can affect means that things are skewed. And you get this thing um, that's been uh, termed Pascal's mugging, which is um, explained well in a paper by Nick Bostrom. But this is basically a version of the uh, philosophical problem of Pascal's wager. But essentially, it says that actually, if you're employing this sort of utilitarian measurement of good, you can take um, an event that has a kind of vanishingly small probability of happening, like uh, you know an asteroid striking the, the Earth, for instance. But if you can argue that it will Affect a sufficiently large number of people, um, then actually, when you sort of multiply it out, it ends up looking like something really, really important, or scores very highly. And certainly, if you're talking about something like you know the AI singularity, if you're arguing that an AI singularity is very unlikely, but if it did happen, that it would affect you know all future human generations, and so you're talking about countless sort of trillions upon trillions of people, when you multiply those numbers together. It's a very, very small number multiplied by a very, 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 very big number, and you end up with a huge number, so it looks like something that's very important and should be focused on. Um, but this is where we kind of go back to something we've talked about on the podcast before, where this gets criticised on the basis of looking to a lot of people like um, it's kind of quite self-indulgent and that balance between big bet philanthropy and addressing the needs of the world uh, right now seems in the minds of some people to become skewed too much in the wrong direction so that's often some something you'll see effective altruism getting criticized for okay so that's enough with the criticism i mean what's the sort of upshot of this well i guess the You know, I have my own views on effective altruism, um, which I'm not sure anybody particularly wants to hear. But, I mean, I think the first thing to say is it's definitely, you know, something that is worth being aware of and taking seriously because plenty of people out there in the world of philanthropy and beyond are taking it seriously. As I've said, I think as we see the kind of increasing impact of automation and the application of um, automated decision making and artificial intelligence actually frameworks like this which offer a kind of compelling way of being able to measure things uh, objectively um are going to look um you know very useful and are likely to fare very well um i think you know it also even if you don't actually uh kind of believe in effective altruism or want to do it yourself as a philanthropist or working in the world of philanthropy at the very least it's a useful benchmark or a kind of critical tool so you can look at uh, that and try to Ask the question based on an effective altruist mindset of what would an effective altruist do, I mean, maybe I should get a little wristband that that says whatever that acronym is um and and then ask, okay, why is it that what I'm doing is is kind of justifiable instead of doing that and I think you know that's a good question to to keep asking oneself um so you know I think it's it's probably here to stay in one form or another you know I think it's a very interesting thing to engage with of itself. And as you'll see, particularly you know in talking about the criticism there, I think it kind of brings to light in an interesting way lots of those questions around kind of justice and what the, the kind of moral responsibility of people to give is um, and kind of what philanthropy is for in our society. So I think at the very least as a kind of intellectually rigorous framework, a rigorous framework it's very interesting. Okay. Well, I think that brings us uh, neatly to a close after the the usual uh, traditional bit of running long. Um, it just remains to say um, I'll put links to lots of things that I've uh, talked about and quoted from in the show notes. Um, so, you know, uh, if you're interested in those, follow those up. If you're interested more broadly in kind of thoughts and writing on philanthropy and civil society and the impact of technology and all that kind of thing, Check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Or if you like stuff about the history of philanthropy and writing about it, I also do the app for literacy, um, twi- Twitter handle as well. Um, uh, if you've got any ideas for things we could talk about or people I could interview on the podcast, um, drop us a line at givingthought at calfonline.org. dot org. Other than that, uh, just remains to say, like, subscribe, tell all your friends, give us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. and Other than that, we'll see you next time. Bye!